0: Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's October 28th, 2015. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. In part one of today's episode, we're featuring the new film Brooklyn, which was a main slate selection in this year's New York Film Festival and opens in select theaters next week. The film stars Saoirse Ronan as an Irish immigrant in the 1950s, who was torn between her new life in New York and her roots in Ireland. Following the press screening of Brooklyn, Ronan joined director John Crowley, screenwriter Nick Hornby, author Colm Tobin, and producer Finola Dwyer for a press conference. The conference was moderated by festival selection committee member, Marian Missoni. Let's go now to their conversation.
1: Um, I just came in from Brooklyn on the subway uh, to do this. So. <laughs> granddaughter of Mary Riley and Arthur Boyle and granddaughter of Mariana Petticelli and Carlo Mazzoni but anyway um, so I feel especially suited I feel especially suited to to do this Um, but let's since we have the three of you here um, Nick let me just start with you about um, the screenplay um, and how you go about doing this did you read the book and decide to do it or did you and John get together first and and he had you do it talk about that Process?
2: Um, well, Finola um, and her producing partner, um, Amanda Posey, my wife, um, bought me the book and asked me to read it. And I read it and loved it and um, thought that I could see how to do it. Um, so um, I worked with um, those two, with Finola and Amanda, for a while before, before um, we brought John on.
3: And
1: Sasha, had you read the book or do, were you brought in at a point where they sent you the screenplay?
3: Um, I had actually read the book a couple of years before I even heard about the script because I felt like it had been floating around for a while by the time we actually spoke about it. Um, and yeah. And Sasha
2: was nine when I started I was writing nine, it.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was a fetus, so I was a child. Um, but uh, you were holding off for me though, yeah, weren't you? Exactly. <laughs> Writing it for me while I was in the womb. Um, But yeah, (laughs) anyway, eventually I I got to read the script and it was really interesting because, you know, I've done a few films that have been adapted from books and I've never really read the book beforehand. I've always wanted to focus on the script. Um, And this had been something that I had been exposed to a couple of years before. But I remember reading the script and loving it when I met john i was about 18 when i met him 18 nearly 19 and i was thinking about moving away myself i was thinking about like making that big sort of step and so it was another year before we actually shot the film and in that time i had made that move so when i went back to the script again i felt like everything that between columns writing and, and nick's amazing screenplay had just like really kind of hit me on a on a completely different level uh, meant so much more to me over the course of that year. So, All
1: right, let's see. Do we have microphones for people? Okay. Um, so questions here in the white um, top? Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, I have a question for uh, Nick Hornby. Uh, my impression from the the film seems it seems a little more
4: sentimental than the book that leaves out, perhaps some of the um, tougher realities both in Ireland and uh, in New York? Was that your decision or the producers to do that?
2: Uh, I... Uh, there was no decision to leave out any tough stuff. Um, the decision was to try and uh, produce a screenplay that worked and affected people. Um, and, you know, when you adapt a book uh, you, you focus on the line of the narrative and anything on either side tends to uh, get left out, I think. I, I wanted to write the screenplay that I thought would affect the greatest number of people.
1: Um, in the black sweater, I think, up there.
4: Congratulations to all of you. The film is just fantastic. Thank you. Um, I have a question, I guess, for Finola. I'm fascinated by how you uh, put the co-production together and how the choices were made as far as the Canadian piece. Obviously, it has nothing to do with Canada. As a producer, I'm always interested. Well, initially, uh, we looked at making it in New York and Ireland, and uh, I had various financiers who were interested in doing it at a much higher budget and slowly they kind of, you know, fell away for various reasons and, uh, and there probably was a time a few years ago when to make a movie like this the studios would have done in a heartbeat and they don't anymore and so it was about trying to, I didn't want to just make it, I wanted to make it really well, so I made up a lookbook of all the kind of locations we were looking for to replicate of Brooklyn, 1951. And the countries and states across America that offered incentives. Hello, oh, So you turned up, did you? We're going to do a little, a little quick introduction here, maybe, Divas and then are continue. Here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so congr- I'm glad you, I'm glad you got here. Uh, Dan at the end, John Crowley, the director, and Colm Tobin, who wrote the book.
4: Um, so yes, we made up a lookbook of the locations we were looking to replicate um, and looking at the various incentives that you could get and it took me to Canada and I scouted um, Toronto and Montreal and Montreal was the, was the sort of winner. So it was really where we could go and creatively make the film we want as well as you know, getting as much um, what we call soft money. And, um, yeah, Mont- and we did two days in New York, one day in Brooklyn and one day in Coney Island.
1: And, and be, before we take another question, since the two of you are here too, maybe um, you two can speak about something you were talking about before, about sort of, um, the, somebody had asked a question about um, that the, the screenplay may not have taken everything of some of the hardships and things that were in the book. Um, do you want to speak to that, of how, how things, how the film was made, What you, if things were left out, or is just the way that the screenplay came and how you made the film?
5: So did you say that, that the hardship was
2: left out?
1: Well, uh, there was a question there, yes. We've and, been attacked uh,
2: for sentimentality. Yes, oh, we've been attacked okay. for sentimentality. <laughs> um, gosh. Not um, my
1: words, well, well, Nick's words. Well, I
6: think I, can, I think that if, um, if you're writing a novel, and you need to suggest that over time, someone is, bec- is under great pressure and is unhappy, you really have to do it again and again and again in a novel. If you do it again and again and again in a film, the audience says, yes, we already know that. Because in the scene, which, you know, you guys together, where the letter comes and you go upstairs, well, that's enough. You know, this has been this unhappiness has been bubbling under. And there's a second scene, which is when you realize that she's under pressure at work, there's a sense of her being Um, the woman she's working for this is is, is, is in Brooklyn is actually quite unpleasant in a certain way watching her all the time those two things do what a film can do and a novel can't do they they signal an emotion but if you do that three more times you lose the intensity of it And, and so it's a completely different system whereas in a novel you do have to hit again and again and again at it so it, it's so that that would be my answer to that, that it's absolutely clear to the audience that both at work and personally she's under very great pressure. I mean, and, and I think that can't be more clear, really. But if if it's made more clear, you lose it.
5: Yeah, I mean, there was certainly no intention to soften anything. Um, uh, quite the opposite really but it was it was really just all about um, staying as focused on Ailish very very specifically and quite close to her emotionally as we possibly could um and that you that the whole film would feel what she was feeling as it were and um but it may well be also that in a film this sort of feeling of rapture you get when she actually does meet Tony is um quite enhanced it's it's um a different kind of moment in a film than it is in a novel, I think. It it carries more um, of a certain kind of emotion. So it maybe feels like that was lent on more, but um, I think that's a formal thing rather than an intentional thing on our behalf.
1: Yeah, no, I think you all hit the nail on the head on why you have novels and then why you have screenplays. Okay, Um, here.
2: Thank you all for your beautiful work. My question is, is to the director: uh, the landscape of faces in this film are just a, are, are like Terrence Davis. They really just sort of set the viewer into the scene of who these people are, just looking at them. So I'd like to know about the casting, particularly Ethan Cohen and uh, Julie Walt, just Bringing her back to us in America is is a treat. So thank you. But just talk about how you cast the film. Um.
5: Uh, uh Bit by bit is really the only answer, you know. I, I mean, you sort of cast, and um, uh, I have worked with a very good casting director. Who also, happens to be the mother of my four-year-old boy, so I get a <laughs> lot of work done across the kitchen table of an evening. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't cast from um, from looks. You, you cast if it's a speaking role, obviously, with the exception of the Christmas Day sequence. Um, you you cast for an actor's sort of inherent in truth and. Julie has an Irish mother, and um, she'd never played Irish that I knew of. So it it sort of felt like that she would know who this woman was, and she instantly recognized who this woman was, and went after that rather deliciously, you know? Um, uh, But once we had our main leads in place, um, it it was really about finding the exact right actor. A lot of them are, are in the Irish section, aren't well known actors, but they're very, very well known in the Irish theatre. So they're great character actors. Um, and then when you know the one of the interesting things on Christmas Day sequence, which was all shot in Montreal, of course, um, was that a lot of those men didn't speak English. You know, they're they're French Canadian. But we had a very good extras casting person in Montreal. And with the help of a number of books that I pointed her towards I said they got to have faces like these, and she went and found them, and because um, uh, then it, the, all of those obviously evoke a whole sort of coastal shelf of stories that any one of which could be a film in itself. You know, Tony. Oh. Tony? Um, uh, Tony was a journey, to put it mildly. You know, and th- there were a lot of ideas, there was a lot of suggestions for larger names, and but it was to find somebody who was believably alpha enough to be um, a plumber in Brooklyn but also had the sensitivity truthfully um, was a, was a tall order and um, Emery put himself on tape as it were, at, 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 and it was invited to put himself on tape and the second he did that um, it was one of those auditions one of only two that I've ever seen in my life where you instantly know that's our guy and um, yeah, he he just had those two um, elements in for free and was wonderful in The Place Beyond the Pines but was very scary you know. and so I, I spoke to Derek Saint-France and said is he acting <laughs> or, or is that just who he is and he said no he's acting he's acting
7: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and uh, so, Saoirse, um talk about I mean you're very young but you've made lots of films and your name is there and did you automatically come to her did it automatically come to you, did you audition did you have to work for it? how did you come into this
3: I feel like, um, I mean, I heard about it and you came over within the space of like three weeks or something. You know, I had read the book, as I said, a few years before um, and and loved it. Um, but then by the time I heard about the screenplay, I knew Fiona was casting. I knew Fiona. Uh, she sent John over to me in Ireland. And we just talked and we just went and had a cup of tea and had some food and uh i was saying before you got here that that's when i was thinking about moving away and so the story really kind of spoke to me in that way um so i just remember us kind of me asking you about your experience of moving away and i was very much in that mindset anyway and i think from then on it it felt like it was it was kind of set in stone right is that yeah and uh, you know from it my point felt of view, that,
5: yeah. um sirsha was in the very, very best sense, the the obvious idea in Ireland, that in perfect age for it, and had proven herself as an actress, but was maybe waiting for the big role to take you from younger roles to an adult role. And um, But what what sort of came for free with her was life experience, which is that between us meeting and talking for the first time and, and actually getting on set, which was a full year, you went through a lot of the things that Ailish goes through, which is you, you left home, you got a boyfriend and you moved, moved to, to, to London, to perfidious England and, 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 and experienced what's quite unusual if you are a young urban person um, who leaves Ireland right now and you don't expect to be homesick, you know? And you, because home is a text away, a phone call away, it's an hour away on a plane. It's not like leaving in the 50s when, when you would leave on a boat. And, and yet to, to be able to experience that same feeling which I think is what's universal about what, what Colm wrote, which is, is um, the split that happens in somebody when they leave home. That it's, it's almost suggests that it's a sort of a, a wound that won't be, won't be healed up all that easily. You just embrace it and learn to live with it. Um, so all of that, Saoirse brought with her to set, thankfully.
3: I think as well, I know the thing that struck me in the script and with my own personal experience was sort of, and everyone seems to feel this way, is that it's not even the act of leaving home, the physical act of like moving away from home, but it's more the realisation that you get when you've left, that you can't go back to how it was ever again. And this sort of grief, this like uh, haze of grief starts to set in, and as Colm and Nick so beautifully put it, homesickness is is something that stays with you for a while until it's passed on to somebody else and you don't know when that's going to be and uh, you can never sort of calculate how long it's going to last for or prepare yourself for it and I think that's kind of the scariest thing out of everything is that there's this heaviness that you feel you know, and you don't know when that's going to be lifted and of course it is Um, but I was still in that State when we did the film, so it was incredibly... It was such an incredibly vulnerable place to be in.
2: And you'd never played Irish before. No. Which and that, is incredible, actually.
3: Yeah, and that was the other thing, is that I was waiting for the right Irish character to come along, you know. There had been scripts sent to me over the years and um, a lot of scripts that people had written about, you know, Irish folklore or famous Irish characters from our past. But it just didn't feel like the heart of us had really been captured. And I, do, and I feel like with a, a lot of the films that have come out over the last while, it hasn't captured our spirit. And that was one of the first things I said to you, was that, you know, Nick, this fella from England, was able to come along and completely capture our spirit so so perfectly, right? Um, and that was amazing, and that was so exciting to be a part of something where I felt like everyone that was involved in the film understood us and understood the magic of the Irish, you know?
1: Uh, let's see.
3: Okay, over here.
7: There's a beautiful shot uh, when we say goodbye to Jim, when we see him the last time, and there is uh, almost like dust in the air that looks like ashes or snow and uh for me that uh, um encompasses the grief you were talking about maybe that is the homesickness in
8: the air
5: um yeah i don't want to take away the poetry from it because it's one of those moments where we got lucky but someone hadn't done the hoovering basically (laughs) okay um i mean it I, I, i tell that at our own expense because it's one of those moments right which didn't it washed up in the rushes, as it were, you know? Because when you're looking on the monitor and down the pipe of the camera, you didn't really see that. And um, we were shooting and, you know, as always, you're under pressure and it's like, you don't have enough time, and it's sort of, come on, let's go again, let's go again. And after about three, four takes, I think it was the rushing around, people running in and out, tape measures, you know, all the stuff that happens was just just making the dust come up from the, the, the mat, I'm afraid. Of course, we intended it, and it took hours <laughs> yeah. to get. Um, but it was—it—it's sort of—and it's completely unenhanced. And people have asked, you know, did you add that? After no, it's God's own dust sprinkled around. But it's—it's it's, yeah, you got to get lucky at some point, don't you? So <laughs> there you go.
4: Uh, first of all, sir, if you had the novel on you, I'd give you money now to read it. I am so in love with these characters. Oh my God. I don't want to leave these characters at all. I want to know more about them. And of course it's you as an actress, absolutely fantastic. And as a director, whomever did your extra casting, you had people of color in Brooklyn in the front. So my question to you, and it might sound a little weird, and please don't think me, you know, a garish American. There was a movie of many years ago called Soul Food that became a series. Any goals, any desire to maybe see this like on a Netflix or a Hulu? Absolutely. Oh, thank God. producer. <laughs>
3: Yeah, well, we, we had said that at the time that when we were shooting all the Miss Kelly scenes, it was so stressful. <laughs> it was like amazing and wonderful and funny. But we, we did like eight dinner scenes in one day. And I think because we had Julie, who was so bloody brilliant, she like could have kept it all going. And we said at the time, if we were ever going to have a spin off it was going to be Mrs. Kelly's, yeah. right? Yeah, the boarding house is. Definitely. Oh, sorry, words. not Miss Kelly's, Macchio's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean. Macchio's. Mrs. Kelly's would be um, very different. Mrs. Kelly's would have been <laughs> great. We don't want Mrs. Kelly, no, no. Come and visit. Macchio's.
2: Yeah. I'm doing that one, Mrs. Kelly's shop. You can do that. A yeah. miserable suppose. one. Not, one yeah. not much soul food around <laughs> yeah. Nettles yeah. Kelly's No place. sentimentality
3: in that one.
5: <laughs> we'll make up for the softness in the film with the yeah, Nettles exactly. Kelly spin-off.
1: Yeah. Um, right there.
3: Hi, um, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about releasing this film, kind of in this moment where we're having all these conversations about migrants and immigration. Just if you had any thoughts about that.
5: Um, yeah, I do. <laughs> um, it's a tricky one because you know this is, um, in lots of ways, a very small story, um, but it has scale. Do you, you know what I mean? Is that it hopefully, suggests a lot more than, than the actual size of one young woman's journey. Um, it's also rather internal, and it doesn't rely on melodrama or large dramatic events to keep moving forward. Um, y- when you look at the contemporary migrant crisis, to be honest, the closest parallel would be um, the famine migration in Irish history, which is a very, very different thing, but that, that has sort of shocking parallels. I think so, um, but it's it's a story which um, I don't know if at its best maybe it humanises the idea of migrants. I mean, there's you know there's, there's a very different relationship to immigration here, or a very different tone to the to the conversation about immigration here than there is, for instance, in the United Kingdom. You know, so um, uh, yeah, it's a very big issue to walk around.
4: That. I mean, we've all been talking about it a lot. Um, of course, because it is in the sort of zeitgeist. And I think in terms of Ailish's journey and all those thousands of people, hundreds of thousands that came from Ireland, came from Italy at that time and at the end of the First World War, they were all in search of a better life. And I think that's what a lot of um, the crisis now is the same. Those people are also in search of a better life.
2: A long time before I talked first to John about the script, um, I talked to Mike Nichols about the script. Um, he, he'd asked to speak to me and we had a phone conversation, which was very interesting. And he said, I think that you need to make a case for why this story now. And he said, and there are lots of cases to be made. Um, and I think he meant that I should make that case somehow in the script. And I, I kind of politely disagreed um, Because I think that, actually, whenever you make this film, there is always going to be that argument going on in in the time in which the film is being released. And, in fact, we're having this huge um, argument about it and debate about it in Europe at the moment. Um, uh, And there are various people uh, on the right, politically, who say enough's enough and we don't want any more, despite what's happening. And uh, it's quite interesting to bring a film out in that time which says these are how countries are made. Countries are made by uh, shifts and influxes. And um, there's never a good time not to talk about it, I think. Um, This is a secret
6: history of Ireland over a period of 150 years. And it's still going on in Ireland, in other words, that... Um, if you graduate now from a university in Ireland, there's there's still no work for you, and you have to find another country to go to. And and as I was writing the book, it was happening. But as I was writing the book, something else was going on in Ireland, and I was acutely conscious of it, which was that for the first time in our history, people were starting to come to Ireland looking for work, that um, a lot of Polish people arrived in Ireland, a lot of Nigerians. Suddenly, Ireland was a place of destination. And Ireland was uneasy about this. I don't, Ireland wasn't sure because we were so used to being the victim, or the, or, the, or the country that sent our young people abroad. Suddenly having them arrive, people arriving, and I, I was aware that I had to be careful with the book, not to preach. I'm, I'm, I'm not involved as a writer in preaching to my nation, but nonetheless, there was an undercurrent in the book: "Was look, this is what it's like to arrive in another country looking for work." And, you know, someone who, who, who will eventually become a citizen. This is what it's like the first year. Please have pity on the Polish people, on the Nigerian people, on the Chinese people. Please see them in this way. But I didn't want to make that clear. I wanted to make it, in a way, I wanted to dramatise one case, one story of an Irish person. But I did have in the back of my mind that for an Irish audience reading and thinking, oh my God, that must be how the girl who actually, we, you know, we haven't, who's working in the supermarket. That must be when she looks sad, the Polish girl. That must be what she's going through. So I was aware, uh, you know, uh, of that other story, of the contemporary story, as I was writing the book, and aware also of the effect the novel might have on a reader. I suppose with every novel, you have, you have somewhere or other like to try and, that, it, it's, that the reader learns to imagine something they might not have imagined before, And that, no matter what you do, has political implications.
1: Um, Here, down here in the front.
8: Hi, thank you very much for this movie. I'm so happy to be here today just because um, um, I've been looking for answers and I finally found them. I've been here for three and a half years and in two and a half weeks I'm going back to Russia and I'm terrified. And I found so much myself in the main character, um, and all the struggles. And um, in general, it's a beautiful picture, but I would like to ask the director about the, first of all, and say thank you for custom design and the music. The custom design was amazing. And, uh, but my question about the score writing, um, the, the movie itself is very sentimental. But and the music is only enhanced. So um I could understand the first question about the sentimentality of the of the movie itself. So um could you tell me about your work with the, uh, with the music designer and the sound designer? What was your idea? Um what would did you want to uh how did you want to use the music as a tool?
5: So there's two things. One is I would say I, I disagree with the word sentimental only because sentimentality to me feels like either like unearned emotion or indulged in emotion for its, for its own sake. And right from the outset, um, it, it felt like the film would work with an audience if it was emotional in a way which is not particularly fashionable now, right, which is, and that it wasn't cool, we weren't going to hang back and be ironic about it. You would have to go in there and be emotional. And the score would have to come in underneath that and help express that. But I didn't want the score to have a specifically Irish idiom either, which is to have illon pipes or to, you know, to have, which is oftentimes what happens when non-Irish filmmakers make films in Ireland. They, they sort of dial all that stuff up and it drives me mad. And, and I felt I wanted the, the identity of the film and the look of the film as well to feel, um, in the the best possible way, almost artless, and to apply all the artfulness of a a very, very talented crew to that, right, but to not keep saying, you see, it's Irish, it's Irish, it's Irish. And, you know, Christmas Day then, it's very different. You have an Irish song in the Irish language, you know, that you you go there and put that in there. So, um, yeah, it's all about emotion, the score. I don't know what more we can say than that. that. Um, Michael Brook, who had done a, a number of wonderful scores and has a great history in ambient music, actually. I mean, he worked with Brian Eno for years and Peter Gabriel. It's a very unusual choice for this, in a way. But I find a lot of film scores um, to be uh, um, either evocative of what the temp score on a film was, which is a sort of reheated version of last year's hit score, um, or to be sort of reworkings of cliched ideas. You know, the same minor chords and uh, in the major chords for certain kind of moments. And, and he... Um, Uh, It took a long time, because it was the first orchestral score he had done, but it's all the better for that, because he wasn't playing by the rules. And I don't think you'd mind me telling you this, he doesn't read music, you know? Um, Anita did Paul McCartney, and that didn't affect him. So he was coming from a very intuitive place. And there are parts of the score that I listen to, still, and I think, fucking hell, that's such an odd note to put in there. So I don't think it's sentimental, I think it's emotional, but it really does try and follow the edit very, very closely follows shot by shot. Um, So, yeah.
7: Thank you. This film was uh, a lot to think about. I think it really delved into homesickness more than many other films that I'm thinking of. and um, Somebody who's gone through that spoke to me very much. The question I had was about the nature of villainy in the film. Because it seems like the film really only has one villain. And As I was watching it, maybe this is something of what other people are picking up on when they say sentimental and whether we like that word or not. But there's a sense which I kept expecting characters to not be friends to Grealish and they kept being friends to her. And there's a sense of a sort of fundamental decency to essentially every character in the film except uh, the old woman, uh, Kelly. Yeah. And that really affected me. And in fact, the, the painful situations that she gets into in the film seem to be outside of any individual's control except the screenwriter or the, the, the writer. And, it, yeah, it was in, and, and I don't know whether it provoked a certain nostalgia for a time when people were more decent, or if you could speak about this decision to maybe play up certain audience expectations for the headmistress to be sadistic, and or whatever, and, and it didn't happen. And I thought that was actually really fantastic and kind of brought into higher focus the just very natural homesickness of, that she
2: was experiencing. Well, I'd like to start, if that's all right. But um, I mean, I think this idea that um, there should be a villain is, is not an idea from life. It's an idea from screenplay writing, actually. Um, At the moment, and for quite some time, my life has not contained a villain, it's it's contained very good people who are trying to do their best, and yet there are parts of my life that are enormously difficult and cause great pain. And I'm sure that's true of everybody in this row, I suspect it's true of everybody in this cinema. And the idea of writing for me is to try and convey the idea that life is extremely difficult for certain people at certain periods in their life, but not because a bad person has caused it. Um, that it happens despite there being no bad person person causing it. Um, and for me it's ref- refreshing to find material where actually you can love everybody. The other thing that I see as my job as a writer is that um, I wanna walk around and round everybody until I can see what it is that their friends and family love in them, even if they are flawed. And uh, that, that to me is a whole person. Um, there are very few people I've ever met that are irredeemable. And, um, and they do have fulfilled emotional lives even if they're causing me trouble. Um, I'm talking about critics, I suppose, <laughs> in p- particular. Um, but, yeah, the, the villain thing is, is, for me, that's a screenplay by numbers thing. I mean, I think
6: one of the things you want as a novelist, if someone is going to write a screenplay of your novel, is that they also be a novelist. Because what I, what I imagined was a young woman who, for some reason, that she che- herself doesn't understand Attracts people people like her people do things for her. She's a sort of younger sister in the family She's used to this. She, she doesn't she she doesn't do anything to cause it. That's obvious But nonetheless everywhere she goes people trust her people give her promotion or people fall in love with her and she radiates this without attempting to do so and um, of course if you If you get in the wrong, with the wrong script writer, somebody could say, yes, and I'm going to show how this breaks down. But the fun part is, what if it doesn't? What if she manages, when she goes to America still, with everyone she meets, by some natural sort of good manners, some natural charm, some natural ease, to actually win things for herself, small things, and then make a life for herself and then be torn, that that is, um, I I mean, it requires, I think, great nerve on the part of a screenwriter to stick to that, to say, actually, there's drama, there is drama in that, more drama, than if you have her suddenly meeting her nemesis somehow, that if she doesn't, in other words, every novelist comes up against this all the time, I know what the movie would do but as a novelist, I'm going to do exactly the opposite. You know, I'm going to have the am going to have the couple fall in love and stay in love in my novel. I know in a movie that wouldn't work, but in a novel it would. But actually, if you can transfer that to the screen, as Nick has done, it's a very powerful thing to do because it goes against um, the reader, the reader, no, there's not a with the viewer, the okay. the expectations, and therefore creates within itself a sort of drama.
5: It was a comment that we met um, with frequently when we were going out to financiers. Um, uh, thankfully, not that frequently, or we wouldn't be sitting here. But th- th- there were quite a few who said, you know, nothing really happens. It's sort of, you know, and there is, there is, as Nick says, this sort of 101 Robert McKee idea, inciting incident, 10 p- pages in, something has to happen, a bomb has to go off, someone's gotta be shot, or at least slapped, but something's gotta, you know. So the idea of making something where nobody actually even raises their voice in the entire thing <laughs> um, and, and trying to generate a different sort of tension and I think it's right, a lot of people think oh Tony's going to turn out to be ne'er do well, he's going to run away and leave her pregnant and on her own, or, you know, all this sort of um, melodramas that lurk in the shadows of a story which is actually just about everyday people leading lives of you know quiet desperation as the man says you know, getting on with it is plenty of drama and there's, there's no shortage of in there, but one scene not to go against everything we're just saying which nick expertly dialed up should we say for the film adaptation is the confrontation with nettles kelly the, the the second scene because that was the scene where in the novel is left a little bit more um, ambiguous certainly and even the very end of the film is le- or the book is, is left more ambiguous um, here needed to have a feeling that actually this was the moment in which she was going to announce who she was and that the power that somebody like nettles kelly had over her and that the society had over her was one of secrecy and shame and if she stood up and said well this is who i am it's gone it evaporates instantly that the power is absurd in in front of that you know and to deliver her back to america felt like the final beat that somehow if you had followed the story thus far, would be the right beat to finish the film on, which is not the same thing as a happy ending, right? It's, but it felt it, like it was the right structural and emotional way to conclude. Um, whereas in the novel, it, it finishes with her on the train where she closes her eyes, and, and then she thought no more about it.
1: Um, I think this is the perfect place to end with this lack of irony, with lack of villains, and just a really beautiful story. Um, thank you all very, very much. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Part 2 of today's episode features one of the highlights of this year's Convergence, a section of the New York Film Festival which focuses on immersive media, acting as a forum for storytellers of all stripes to actively explore the shifting media landscape. Every year, the series features screenings, installations, interactive experiences, panels, and presentations. This year, one of the most insightful presentations came from screenwriter and journalist Mike Jones, whose event was titled, The Working Screenwriter. The talk drew on his 15 years of experience working for independent producers, major studios, and now Pixar, to offer a picture of what it's really like to pursue a career as a professional screenwriter today. Let's go now to that presentation.
9: Hi. My name is Mike Jones. Um, I'm not a screenwriter that you have heard of at all. Um, I'm not a screenwriter with even a big or a medium credit. Uh, I probably haven't written a movie that you know. Um, if you Google me, you'll probably get a long list of press articles about projects that I've been attached to, none of which were made into a movie. Uh, and, uh, so that when they, when I talked to Matt, I actually did a version of this speech at South by Southwest. And, when they came and asked me to do a speech on screenwriting, I ultimately passed. Um, because if those are the metrics of success, um, I, I just don't have that. Uh, you know, Plus, my name is Mike Jones. And it's just kind of a name you say once, and you kind of instantly forget. You know, It's like, I'm going to go hear Mike Jones talk today. Heard of him? It's like, oh, no. I, I don't know. I think, yeah, Mike Jones, it kind of sounds familiar. Like, what does he look like? Oh, he's like white guy average build average looks total like off the shelf average waspy guy it's like ah, oh, yeah no i don't know it's so like mike jones like mike jones you could buy off costco you know it's in bulk um so anyway when they asked me to come speak i said no because you know what can i really speak about what can i speak about is working my ass off for 15 years at to try to make a living at screenwriting, uh, knowing that you, know, you might make that six-figure paycheck, but when you don't work the next year, that six-figure paycheck becomes five. Um, so I don't have platitudes to give you. I can't tell you how to sell a screenplay or to get an agent. The only honest thing um, I can do here is kind of give you myself and my story. Um, and it's full of failures, and it's full of fuck-ups, and it's mostly full of assumptions followed by bewilderment and confusion. <laughs> about what it really means to be a working screenwriter. Um, and then when I said that to Matt, he said, yeah, great. Come talk about that. So yeah. we'll talk about that. Um, you know, honestly, for years I had a very difficult time separating my writing from my business. My financial position at any given time was influenced by my writing, but um, though, uh, though, it was ne- though it never influenced what I could write well. And that's what I kind of want to give you in this long speech here. Uh, for year, uh, um, it's that's a point I'll circle back to, so you know they always say write what you know, write what you feel, write what's in your heart, and yeah, of course, you know, and if you're one of those handful of screenwriters that can exist on um, just writing original specs, which is original work, um, by all means absolutely you should do that, but the truth is most working screenwriters don't do that. Uh, Most screenwriters make a living by writing assignments, which I'm going to get into later. Um, And the truth is, you know, there's no benefactors uh, for screenwriters. Everything we do is self-generated. We generated our success and we generate our failures as well. Um, But most every screenwriter starts in the business by writing a good original work, and that is your calling card uh, spec, that's your calling card script. Um, And mine uh, was a script called Miller, and it was what the industry called a character-based script. And... um, Uh, I had written three scripts before Miller, you know, each one got me enough praise to write the next one. Um, I was living here, I graduated from NYU film school, Uh, I was the managing editor of Filmmaker magazine for many years, Um, and I was writing these scripts. But I was born and raised in Texas, and my eye always goes back to Texas for story. Um, And Miller came right out of my life. Miller is about an ex-con, he's fresh out of jail um, in South Texas. Uh, and he's doing everything he can to kind of get back on track. And the character was based on my father, who uh, went to prison when I was in high school. Uh, I worked two jobs waiting for him to get out of prison um, so that we could get an apartment together and I can help him get him, back, get him back on his feet. And when he got out, as I watched him in those years before I went to college, I watched how he struggled. And that struggle stayed with me. And um, I always wanted to write about that struggle. Um, You know, it's why I went to film school. It's why I love movies like HUD and Tender Mercies and Midnight Cowboy. I love characters that are struggling um, for what they want, but perhaps failing to get what they need. Um, So the character Miller kind of just jumped right off the page uh, as I wrote it. And the writers in the audience, actually, how many writers in the audience? How many screenwriters are here? Oh, good. All right. So maybe you'll learn something from this. I don't know. All right. you know, when you, when you write, when you find a character that you love, um, once you kind of land on that character, that character, you might find, starts writing its own dialogue. If that character is alive, it's, if it's three-dimensional, it will start telling you, in a way, where it wants the story to go. And um, Miller surprised me when that happened. It, 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 it surprised me how much I knew this character. It shouldn't have, but it did. And so when I was eight, when I threw this kitchen sink at him, I realized that he would do different things, this character. And that was a way for me to make it not so much about my father, um, but to also understand that as long as I had a character that was alive, that you felt uh, in your heart that you believed, you didn't ha- I didn't have to give it my own personal experience in a plot. I could throw a different plot at him. Um, And Miller took off. Miller got me an agent. It nearly got made. We had Chris Cooper and Marsha Gay Harden and Scarlett Johansson attached, and it had money in the bank twice, and both times it fell out. It's never gonna get made. But um, it started my career as a screenwriter, and it was my calling card script. And right after that, um, uh, I got called by Matt Dillon to rewrite uh, his movie called City of Ghosts. I don't know if you remember City of Ghosts, but it was Matt Dillon's directorial debut, and he lives here in Manhattan. Where I was living at the time, and um, he, uh, I wanted kind of to translate what I did with Miller into a more conventional story, and um, I thought like why not? And that's what Matt wanted, and Matt read Miller and he loved Miller, and that's what he wanted in the script. He wanted that sense of authenticity as well, Um, and that's how I got the job. And I had never written for anyone else before. Um, I assumed it would be different, but I had really no idea how. And I realized that you know in these sorts of for hire jobs. the parts of the sto- there's many parts of the story that come locked down. I'm going to talk about assignments a little bit later, but particularly with Matt's story, um, you know, producers can come and bring you work um, and ask you to rewrite it, and they can say, you know, go have fun with it. Go explore. Go do whatever you want with it. I have actually never found that to be the case. <laughs> I have always found that if you, if you didn't deliver something that they couldn't vocalize, then it's just a, it's a slippery slope to just failure, and the kind of, you know, the same happened with Matt. Like after several weeks, I found my role had changed from screenwriter to more of a court reporter. As Matt paced the room and acted out all the parts, and I had to quickly type them down. And then he would go no, 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 and I would delete, delete, delete. And then he would act them out again, and I would quickly type it down. And then he'd go no, 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 and I delete, delete, delete. It was a lot of that. And I don't begrudge him for that because that is the way he needed to understand his characters. But the problem is there was no room for my characters, and the plot was more or less set. Um, I came into the job as a writer when what he really needed was a, was a story structure mechanic. Um, and I don't say that to be negative at all because knowing structure is incredibly valuable. I didn't know it for years. Um, but knowing it is essential to deconstructing it, uh, at Pixar writers are joined with filmmakers who already have characters, who already have directions. And so you are more or less a map maker for them. You are, um, drawing out plot, you're making emotional connections. Um, and you're finding, like, in, you're finding particular journeys, but, but those are their characters, those are their plot, and, and you are there to service that. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's actually a great amount of that. I love doing that. I'll get more into Pixar a little bit later. Um, after City of Ghosts, I did one more job for Matt, um, thinking it would be different, but it wasn't, and my frustration boiled over, and um, I left the project early. Um, And looking back on that whole project, I realized Matt needed much more than a green screenwriter, the green screenwriter I was at the time. Um, He needed a writer with true experience um, who could challenge him and provoke him and uh, keep the story honest and true. Um, It was a thriller about con men. I don't know if many of you have seen it, but it's a thriller about con men. That story needed to be pushed. um, It needed to be uh, uncomfortable in the narrative. We need to make make Matt uncomfortable in in telling that narrative. Um, But I failed to do that. Um, uh, so after City of Ghosts, um, I wanted to write something that was mine um, and, I just, and I wanted to get paid for it because uh, the, the, what I got paid for that was very, very minimal and by the end, by the time that job was done, I had no money in the bank, I was broke, so I went out and I pitched to the Hollywood Studios and I pitched um, this idea to the Hollywood Studios uh, called Automata um, and I thought I could put, you know, characters that I know how to write into a big studio tentpole movie. Uh, and so i came up with a pitch about an underground giant fighting robot club uh, that competes for pink slips
7: <laughs>
9: it's funny, it's, it's, it's funny. Uh, i sold it to stan winston productions i don't know if you remember stan winston productions he was stan was still alive at the time he since passed away he's a famous creature and special effects designer and he wanted to direct it and we sold it to Columbia. um and it's suddenly like boom i had another job i i honestly thought of that pitch in the car 30 minutes before i went in to meet with his director of development and um, I think I thought, wow, like this is easy. This is fitting all of that that mythos that everybody reads about about writing the plot on the back of a napkin and selling that to an executive, uh, you know, all of that bullshit, right? And I said, um, now my career is matching the careers of screenwriters that 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 I've read about, you know, in Variety and Hollywood Reporter, the Quentin Tarantino's, like all that. Um, but uh, I sold them on a cool plot. Um, I had no idea about the character. Uh, When I started writing, I realized I needed a character. Uh, So I needed a character that I knew. I knew my dad, and Miller became a great character. I couldn't use my dad in this one, so I thought I would use myself. So it stars me. (laughs) Uh, A different name, obviously, but everything about this guy was me. And I was 25. I had no idea who I was at 25. Um, I barely knew me, and that's what came out. So Automata is a giant fighting robot movie starring me as a geeky robot builder. Now show of hands of who wants to see that movie. (laughs) Diana Williams, put your hand down. Diana Williams, immediately her hand went up. Put your hand down. It's a terrible script. It's awful. Because the character has no want. The character wants to build a giant fighting robot that will not fill two hours. Um, The sense of giving a character a want was foreign to me for a really long time. And for all the writers out there, I encourage you to embrace and study this idea of what a want is. There's a physical want, and there's an internal want that a character has. And it's really important that you figure out what that difference is and how those things are driving the plot. Um, You know, I think it came naturally to me in Miller because the lead character in Miller is preloaded with my dad. Like, I knew that want. I knew what he wanted, and I knew what he needed, which are two different things. Um, I work with Michael Arndt on several projects and he uh, at Pixar, and he's always talking about what physically drives the character and what internally drives the character. Um, and most, um, most importantly, how both of those fuel each other to drive the action. Um, and you can look at every Pixar movie through this lens. Uh, they want uh, the want in their movies and the reason it is the most successful film studio um, is that every action is driven by an internal need, whether that need is realized by the main character or not. Um, you know, Woody fights to keep his family together because that defines his sense of worth, not the boy who he belongs to. Right. I mean, uh, Marlin is generally a passive character in Finding Nemo, um, but the loss of his son perfectly propel- propels that narrative, right? It's emotional and it's physical. Um, joy and inside out wants to save her girl by, uh, and she thinks only she can do it. Um, but what she needs and discovers at the end is that the only way to do it is by allowing sadness at the table. And how does she realize that by realizing that sadness within herself? Um, you know, Joe Buck wants to go to New York city, uh, in midnight cowboy to be rich and fam- be a rich and famous male escort where he hopes to find connection through money and sex. Um, but what he ends up needing is the companionship of a sick and near homeless con artist who also needs him. Um, So after Automata failed, they paid me um, to leave the project early. (laughs) Uh, I looked back on on it, in Miller and I asked myself, what went wrong? Um, And I found that it was it. There was nothing fueling my character's action. There was no internal combustion engine for him. So I decided to start implementing rules for what I wanted to write, and this is also very important for the writers in the audience. Um, I was going to write about characters I knew, and every character needed, to de- needed a desire, they needed a want. Um, again, like I was almost out of money. They got me cheap on Automata, and um, after agent, manager, lawyer, taxes, I get half of whatever that contract is. Still is true today. I get half of anything that I sign. Um, so I was broke again. Um, I needed something, and I decided to try the assignment world. So this is this is where screenwriters make their most of their money. This, this screenwriters how, how they put stakes in the freezer. Um, uh, for screenwriters who have um, a good sample yet no credit, um, what you do is uh, it's uh, assignments. So when a production company with a studio deal somewhere, or sometimes they have their own personal money uh, uh, known development money, they hire a writer to adapt an article or a book or another movie, or they hire a writer to rewrite an existing, uh, script, or maybe they have an idea for a movie, um, you'll go in, you'll meet the execs, you'll give, uh, they'll give you some material and you'll go off and you'll develop a take, uh. And if you're really new for it, and you eventually develop a take for a pitch, and if you're really new at it, they'll ask you to give you, uh, they'll ask you to send paper, to send some like an outline of it. And if you make the mistake of sending that in, you're in for a long, arduous process that uh, I will, I'm willing to bet nine times out of ten will not get you the job, because once you get into this process where you're giving free work to um, the studios, essentially. They will keep you going. They will keep you writing. And you can see that job kind of fade out, kind of fade away and slip away from your fingers. Uh, It is, um, and screenwriters who pound the pavement for these jobs commiserate about about this part of the business all the time. Um, It's really hard to see what's real um, and what's not. But more importantly, it sucks your time away from true writing. Um, But this time I needed work. Uh, So I developed all sorts of takes um, for material that production companies had, books, rewrites, Articles, ideas, TV shows. There was a funny story overheard at a dinner party that they wanted me to come up with the take for. and took months of back and forth. And again, I'm like, I didn't get the job. Um, all of these required weeks, just months of de- developing this stuff. And I didn't get any of them. And my wife became pregnant, and suddenly everything changed. Um, I felt life accelerate for me very quickly. Um, and I, I thought that if I was going to make a real career at this, then I needed to work even harder than I already was. Um, and then I got the chance to uh, pitch for a rewrite of Hollow Man 2, straight to video. So who's seen Hollow Man 1? Who thinks Hollow Man 2 is a good idea? <laughs> Diana, no, put your hand down. She's putting her hand. Um, <laughs> uh, so for those who need a refresher on the Hollow Man canon, uh, the original <laughs> movie is, stars Kevin Bacon, uh, who discovers invisibility. And what does he do with it? He goes and kills a dog, and then he sexually assaults someone, or not. It doesn't matter. He still does. It's a bad movie. It's awful. Um, But the producer said, like, don't think about that first movie. Uh, Go have fun. Go explore. Have fun with it, right? And I went all out for Hollow Man 2, developing this giant, like, arty pitch. Um, And this time I put in a believable want. That hinged on an honest need that you discover at the end is, isn't solved by being invisible or something like that. I don't know, but I didn't I remember uh, feeling that they would get they would be lucky for me to write this job, right? And they are lucky because I am gonna write this job because I'm so broke that I need to write Hollow Man 2. And I so I talked myself into loving that tape. And I didn't get the job to write Hollow Man 2. Um, I was stunned and one of the dev execs actually said after the pitch, goes like, they go like, that sounds like a good movie, but this is a straight-to-video job, man, you know? Um, and I started to have a real crisis at this point. Uh, if I couldn't get Hollow Man 2, I must really suck.
7: Um,
9: and a month later, my son was born, and I was flat broke. Um, and I felt we had no choice but to move to LA, which was something that I was resisting. And it's a move that put us straight into debt. Uh, and now I'm living in L.A. and I'm doing these meetings and still the only spec that gets me anywhere anywhere is Miller. Miller's over 10 years old at this point. Um, and I get sent this book called Pool Boy. Pool Boy is a YA novella about a boy who takes a job as a pool man's assistant when his dad goes to jail. And the producers loved Miller for it. And in reading this book, I knew I could land this job not by necessarily talking about Miller, but by talking about my personal story. Now, I don't like to talk about me in pitches where my writing is concerned, because um, my own story of growing up in South Texas is kind of like Werner Herzog's version of boyhood. It is dark, <laughs> and it is it's um, I don't like talking about it in terms of my writing because I need the writing to kind of exist on its own. Um, uh, but I was broke. Um, I had a new family, and um, I needed to talk about my personal story, and I did, and I got the job. Um, I took a pay cut to get it to, and I worked really hard on that script, way too hard um, for what they paid me, and I turned it in, and they didn't like it. Um, And the project went nowhere. And I was pissed that I gave them that for a while. I was very pissed. Um, And I really regretted shilling something that was so personal to me in order to get a job. Um, But I have to say, I now love it. Uh, I love that I tried. Um, I love that I believed at the time... Um, that I had something unique to tell about the story. Uh, and I might've failed to translate it to them. Um, but I gave them what I wanted to give. And in my mind, who else is more qualified than me to tell that story? Um, at the end of the day, like all I have to give to these projects is myself. And, but it, you know, it took me a very long time to say that to myself, I, Frankly, it took, um, a measure of financial success years later. Um, to get me there, because after Pool Boy was done, uh, and as with all of these jobs that take twice as long, again, I was broke. Um, And so I hit the pavement again. I went after jobs, um, like uh, there was an adaptation of something called Hip Hop Cop, and there was one called Bittersweet Life, and there was another one called Bone Canyon. I mean, those titles are so depressing. (laughs) And, And I went out for them hook, line, and sinker, and for all these jobs, so I'd pitch up the ladder Um, only to find out at some point I'm the loser in this pitching sweepstakes because there's a lot of other screenwriters behind me going after these jobs. Um, and also it didn't help that I was spoiled goods, um, in the eyes of the industry. I couldn't land anything. And I was so caught up in getting another job, um, I had lost why I was doing this. Uh, and I needed two things at this point. I needed a new writing sample desperately. I needed something that stood out, something that showed, um, I could write well. And two, after that, I needed to figure out how to be proud of my work again, um, how to be proud of the assignments I took on. Um, and so, you know, I, I like to ask screenwriters when I met when I meet them, working screenwriters, I say, "What was your Hail Mary script? You know, what was the script that had to be good, or you would have had to leave the business?" Um, and most screenwriters have one, um, and most that I've talked to have said it came out of a spec. or a spec came out of this frustration with the assignment world. Um, To be a true working screenwriter uh, means you can still get in front of that blank page when you're broke. Um, This is that Hail Mary script. This is that new original work that you're pinning a lot on, and I think every screenwriter finds themselves there at some point. Um, And the best thing you could do is to go back to the scripts um, that hit and honestly ask yourself how you wrote it. Uh, Where did it come from? For me, it goes back to my dad. It goes back to my upbringing. Um, It goes to what it means to struggle and what it means to love something as you struggle. Um, Then with that in mind, I started searching for something I could plug that into. Um, So years before I started making money at Screenwriter, as a screenwriter, I kept files of stuff that was interesting to me. Uh, Way back then, it was magazine articles I would tear out and put in file, and now it's on iClouds and hard drives. Um, And I I don't know why they affect me, but something about it affects me and I have to pull it out and I pull it out and it starts something. So the image that I came up with, that I pulled out um, of the drawer that day was this image of this book here. Um, This is the Minotaur Takes a Cigarette Break. It's a novel by Stephen Sherrill. I hadn't read the book, but I loved the cover. um, And I read the back of the cover. Um, The story of of this book is that um, 3,000 years uh, out of the labyrinth, the minotaur has become a short order grill cook and a steakhouse in Wichita, Kansas. Um, and uh, it happens from kind of a shady deal he makes with Theseus. Theseus knows he's not going to kill the minotaur. So he says like, hey, I'll show you a back door out. You guys can go like, you can go be like a real person. I'm going to go say you're dead. But you can go live a normal life. Be like a normal person. And the minotaur says like, yeah, like I'd like that, right? And 4,000 years later, that's where he ends up. And I looked at that um, And I said, holy shit, Like that's me. Uh, I'm not the geeky kid that wanted to build a giant robot. Um, I'm the kid who worked those kinds of jobs as I waited for my dad to get out of prison. Um, I know what that kind of loneliness feels like. Uh, I know what it means to want to be alone but not be lonely, Um, of wanting connection but not wanting the responsibility for it. Um, Of needing love but mistrusting it when it gets too close like I knew what it was like to be invisible inside the service industry and the story of this book is that 4,000 years out of the the labyrinth the the Minotaur is um, horribly embarrassed about his face and his horns because it keeps him away from people keeps him isolated. Um, when I grew up, I, uh, when my dad was in prison, I held down two jobs, and one was working at a bar called the 50-50 where I washed um, glasses, uh, uh, mostly shot glasses, right near the shuffleboard table. And my unofficial job was um, to break up fights that would ultimately happen over the shuffleboard table because I would be the first one there. That's where my little horse door um, washing station was. And I had the, the owner told me, like, just get between them and make sure they don't kill each other. And that'll give time for the bouncers who were at the very front of the uh, uh, you know restaurant to come back and kick them out, right? And I loved this job. Every time I heard a fight break out, I would rush out and I would grab the two guys and I would go, "Stop fighting, guys!" You know. So imagine like half me, half the size. You know, grabbing. I loved it because um, you know I li- because it was for a minute um, in between all of the wa- dish, all of the glasses I washed and all the tables I bust. I was, for, mo- for just a moment, a hero. And I remember the waitresses would bring me shots after something like that. It was, all, it was great. Um, you know, The Minotaur has always been thought of as a monster. What he actually is is the product of an illicit affair that his mother had, um, and his dad was so ashamed that he locked him away uh, in the basement. Uh, I mean, just of course that's where he ends up 4,000 years later. Uh, but moreover, I knew what it was like to sit on that, for for me, it was a pickle bucket by the dumpster smoking. Um, I know what it's like to sit out there and hope that the cute waitress comes out, and to have an extra cigarette in your pocket for when she does come out. You know, um, so the book ended up being quite different than what I had uh, than what I'd hoped. But I convinced the author to let me have a crack at it. I changed the plot considerably, um, and he agreed. And I put all I knew about uh, my time. Uh, that time in my life into that story. Um, And Minotaur changed my career. Minotaur uh, is what got me in the door at Pixar. Minotaur would attract directors and stars for years, but it would never get made. Um, However, it became my new calling card script, and suddenly I got a whole new batch of writing assignments. Um, I got uh, one called Gargoyles uh, from the animated show, uh, Toxic Avenger remake, Talking Toaster remake, My Little Pony. Berenstain Bears, Mr. Happy, you know the Mr. Happy books, they wanted to make a movie of that, um, Mr. Magoo, uh, Mr. Magoo would have been kind of fun, um, American World in London reboot. Uh, but I passed on all of them. I said no to all of those. Um, at this point, I decided to really tighten the qualifications for what I would engage on. Um, and the thought of going down the rabbit hole in the assignment world just kind of made me sick. So. These assignments had to hit me in the gut, just like Minotaur did. Um, and right away, um, I started to say no. And a funny thing: when you are able to say no, um, they go like, "Oh wait, he said no. Well, let, let's get him again." You know, and they'll reapproach you. And if you get, if you nine times out of ten, you, you get to a point where you go, "Look, um, here's what I could do with it. Here's where I could go with it. I, I, I don't, I don't like a lot of this idea, but what I can see is we can do this." And suddenly, you have more control over these assignments. Um, And I did take a few assignments here and there. Again, none of them are going to get made. But more importantly, I kept to my rules. Um, And at the end, I can say to myself, I did my job. And I'm proud of what I turned in. Um, And with that, I found it also easier to write original work again. I would dive back into those files again and pull out a speech that William Sapphire wrote in the event that the um, Apollo 11 astronauts were trapped on the moon and couldn't get off, it was a it was a speech that Nixon had ready in his desk to go to read to the nation. And um, I wrote that just com- completely on spec. Again, that put me on like another level of my career. Um, uh, the other specs that I that I ended up doing, um, I did a Sesame Street original movie. Uh, they sent me a a movie or, or, or they sent me a script. And it was about, like, um, I'm trying to remember. So it was about Cookie Monster, and every time Cookie Monster, he, he ate these magical cookies, and then he would burp, and then he would take all the gang back in time to visit George Washington. <laughs> or whoever. And I just, I, I closed it, and I passed on it. As much as I love those characters, as much as I grew up with those characters, I couldn't do it. I passed on it. I said, no. They came back. I said, no, again. They came back. I said, look, let me pitch you something that I would want to do. And I pitched them the origin story of Sesame Street. I mean, what is the origin story of Sesame Street? You know, It's probably some guy, and in this script it was, um, some guy somewhere in New York who gets a brownstone that's being threatened with demolition and you just gotta put people in it and prove it's a residential uh, building. And who shows up but a bunch of Muppets? And he thinks, oh, well, you know, as long as the building is full of people, it's okay and we're a neighborhood. No, right? A neighborhood is people getting along. It's people of different colors and different personalities understanding each other and forming a true neighborhood. And that's what I really wanted to write. And I sold them on that and we sold it to Sesame Workshop. And um, it's one of, I, again, that script might never get made, but I am so proud of that script. Um, I'm also doing, uh, writing the story of the USS Indianapolis. I'm no, I don't want to get into the, you know, the nitty gritty of all these plots, but um, that I needed to find a hook into that. And the beautiful hook that I found is, is uh, my 10 year- old son August, um, who I love, who and, and I, I kind of put him and, and his kind of wants and desires into the script because the, this script uh, turns upon um, the deeds of this kid who uncovers this grand conspiracy, but the kid also has some issues as well. I, I'm not saying that my son has issues, my son's perfect. <laughs> but um, it allowed me to find the hook into that. Um, Just a little bit about Pixar. You know, the truth about Pixar um, is that Pixar is not interested in animation writers. Um, The best way to back up your idea in a Pixar brain trust, um, does everybody know what a Pixar brain trust is? So what a Pixar brain trust is, is that they they, they draw the movie again and again and again, and they have a screening, and they put um, actors' voices to it, and they put a soundtrack on it, and they show it to um, a bunch of people, and then we go upstairs and we talk about what worked and what didn't work. And it's brutal sometimes. Um, and they do that again and again and again for years. Um, the best thing you can do um, in that Pixar brain trust is to align your note um, with something personal. Um, because they don't want to know how a fish talks. You know, They want to know why a fish is saying the things it's saying. Pixar can figure out how to animate the human struggle into any character. But it's a steeper climb um, to unravel that human want in their characters. Um, and they won't animate a movie until they figured it out. I've been in a few brain trust meetings after screenings, and the best contribution you can make is to question and explore that character's heart. And the only way you can really do that is to question your own. Um, so uh, I feel like you know at, at this time in my life, and, and it also probably is the benefit of age, I'm writing some of the best stuff that I've, that I've written. And uh, I will also say that I've become okay with the idea that it might not get made. Um, that is something that every single screenwriter needs to understand. Um, the majority of your work will not get made. Um, and you have to find a way to become okay with that. You know, I, um, a week ago I spoke with a school administrator in the Bay Area who was in charge of uh, overhauling his school's curriculum. Um, and he said something to this point. He, he uh, runs a middle school. And he said, um, you know, as we went through our current program, we hit this huge brick wall none of us that none of us um, had ever seen. Uh, we never said what our goals were for our students. Um, So the students didn't know what to shoot for. They had their goals for a school, but they didn't have the goals for the student. Um, So the students didn't necessarily know what success was in that school. Um, So their goals instead came from elsewhere. They came from parents or mass media or um, the internet or Katy Perry or Grumpy Cat or The Voice. And so we decided as a school um, that we were gonna define what that goal was for them. So that the students knew when they were, when they could be proud of themselves. And that hit me so well because I never had any model for being a screenwriter. I kind of like a, like a little ping pong ball just had to find my way after bumping into so many different things. Um, so, and I, in thinking about a coda for this talk, that's what I would encourage every screenwriter to do in looking to make this into a career. Um, I'm going to assume, um, first of all, I'm going to take a drink. hold on. Mm. Oh, it's good. Um, so I'm going to assume that you already have an amazing script. Um, cause that's a whole nother talk, right? Um, the question is what do you do afterwards? Um, how do you keep it going and you keep it going by not making widgets. You do not ever write one for them. You might have heard this idea the screenwriters that write one for them and one for themselves, one for them, one for themselves. Don't ever write one for them. Um, When they come calling, and if you have a great script, they will come calling. Um, Look at what they're presenting you uh, and find that place in your heart that echoes it and keep that as your true north. Um, And say no if you think you can't get there. You know, don't give them what they need. No, no, I'm sorry. Don't give them what they want. Give them what they need. Um, And when they reject it, you can walk away knowing that you stayed true to that heart and you can dust yourself off and you can do it again and then you do it again and again and again. Um, And maybe none of these movies uh, will get made, but that's way out of your power. That's way out of your pay grade. Um, What each of these jobs uh, will do for you is that it will force you to make your circle bigger. Um, Remember this quote from Joyce Carol Oates. uh, She said, the writer is one who understands how deeply mysterious the familiar is. Um, And that's your job. Your job is to find a way to translate that mystery um, into that circle that includes as many people as you possibly can. Um, It's forcing you as a true writer um, to find where the story crosses over into the myth that is in all of our hearts. Um, That's all I got. I think we got, I think we have five minutes for for, um, Q&A. Maybe we have 10. We have five? We have 35 minutes. (laughs) So anybody have a question? Yes. Uh, Sorry, wait, let me think about that. If I was, would I be more driven or less driven if I was single? No, I, I um, my wife, Maya, um, is probably the single most important factor in my success, I would think. I mean, granted, you know, it, it generates from somewhere within me, but she is the one who told me, you need to keep going, you need to keep writing. Um, and I will honestly say I will not be where I am today without her. But everybody needs that, whether it is a mentor, um, whether it is somebody um, that you trust, Um, it is somebody that um, not only likes what you write, but understands what you're good at writing, which is really, really important, very important difference. I would give these scripts to mine, and she would go like, I don't see you anywhere in here. And I'd be like, it is in there. Just, I'm gonna send it in, you'll see. She was right every single time, every single time. Um, So with me personally, no, Um, but I'm a terrible single person. I'm terrible. I, I I need people. Yes, go ahead. Can I ask how you got to Pixar? Uh, yeah, they read Minotaur. Uh, it takes uh, oh, it's go on. Um, they read Minotaur, um, and um, they read uh, they read Moon Disaster. And um, I was hired on as a consultant there, and I'm working with a couple of directors on their ideas. But also, I kind of I, I, I go in and out on various other projects, and it's great. It's a great place to
4: work. and as a writer, mm-hmm. you're
9: more responding? Are yep. you able to generate ideas? Or that's nope. sort of left to a small group of people? That's left to a small group of people, yeah. No, um, I mean, you can con- certainly contribute to ideas, but you are you are matched with a director who has an idea, who has characters, and uh, your job is to, is to structure that. And I just want to emphasize this point again. Structure is incredibly important, and breaking structure is incredibly important, um, and Pixar will break structure, but you have to start someplace uh and so um and that's that's what i found at pixar they they will find the structure and then they will find a way to mess with it um it's a yeah it's and and it's taught me so much even even now uh the end can we get two more questions one
0: more
9: okay one more uh yes very back very back yes um, did you go out and purchase an option on the book the minotaur takes a cigarette no no i called him directly And I said, I loved your book and I want to I want to write it and I want to I'm going to be very and and it's going to be very different. Um, And uh, the thing is, if you read the book, you'll kind of quickly understand why it's not it doesn't lend itself to movies. The character doesn't talk. um, And I wanted the character to talk. I changed the plot a great deal, Um, but uh, he he appreciated it and he liked it. And I also think that. the movie can exist on its own, and then the book exists in a different plane, different, a different way. And I think that's kind of good. Um, again, like, I hope you see it, but you probably won't. But I love that script, you know? I love that script, and, uh, and, and it still gets, it's still, every once in a while, somebody will ping and go, like, hey, we read it, and we, we would love to do it. Uh, and, I, and I go, yeah, sure. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Probably, yeah. Uh huh. But um, if you find something that affects you, whether it's an article or, um, uh, I, you know, point case in point, there's a New York Times article that I am obsessed about. So two nights ago, I met with the author, uh, the journalist, at a bar, and I pitched him, and we're now we're and and now I'm writing it. That's my new spec, and I can't. And, and that was just him hearing my passion. I think nine times out of ten. That people want to know that you're going to be able to deliver and you're going to be able to deliver from from passion because they he could have optioned this article it was a huge article to anybody it kind of reads like aaron brockovich it's like it reads like a movie but he said he's been saying no and then i come along and say like i don't have any money to give you but i know how to make this movie and i know where it comes from inside me and then he he, he uh he, he let me have it so for a little while have to do it now. Yeah. yeah. All right. Is no, no more. There's no more. All right. Thank you.
0: The Close Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odmark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center, film lives here.